you would, please take your Bibles out and open them up to Romans chapter 13. There we find ourselves this morning as we continue to make our way through Romans through this particular book and this exposition. Uh, we find ourselves at what is entitled as a, as a head in the ESV Bible as submission to authorities. And given the times we live in, and, and I want to say, well, before I say what I'm about to say, I want to say this is always applicable in any time that we live in. But given the time that we live in, where we are watching, where through social media and media in general, where authority gets challenged so much and so often, I think it's right and good that we find ourselves where we are, because however we may personally feel about things from time to time, there are things for us as believers that are right and wrong. And that's not a horribly uh, controversial statement to say. It is in broader culture. But for us, we understand there is an ethic, there is an objective truth by which we live and how we understand the world. Of course, we have our worldview, the grid through which we view the world, the, the worldview being creation, fall, redemption, restoration, understanding that within that framework comes some very important ideas, the way we live our lives, how we interact in the public square, how we interact with truth, but how we interact with authority. It becomes an important piece of, our, of, of, the, of the ripple effect of what the gospel has done in our lives. The gospel that changes us from death to life. The gospel that changes us from lost to found. The gospel that changes us from wicked to righteous. Then it has a, it has a ripple effect, right? It, it ripples out into how we interact with each other, how we are married, how we parent, how we labor, and how we interact with authority. And so this morning, that's where we find ourselves, and, and we need to be reminded that Paul wrote this during the time of, of, of the Roman occupation of Palestine. Paul, being a Jewish man, had certain affinities for his country and his, and his brothers and, and things that are, were a part of his national history, and yet he's writing in a spirit of what does it mean, what does it mean even when we have personal preferences and religious commitments, what does it really mean for us to live in a culture where we have authority by which we must abide, and what does that look like and what doesn't that look like? And so I think that this raises an important aspect of our faith as believers to consider as we think through what does it mean to give to Caesar what is Caesar's? What does it mean when Paul says to be subject to the governing authorities? And so these become valuable questions for us as believers. And so without further delay, Paul, having just in chapter 12 giving, uh, given us the ripple effect of transformation, what does it mean to be transformed? We need to, we need to realize this is still in keeping with that. What does it mean to be, to, uh, to be transformed? How we submit to authority is a ripple effect of that. So without further delay, this morning we're looking at Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, this is God's infallible word. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. 
For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So is the reading of God's Word. May He add His blessing. Please pray with me. Father, we live in a time where you read paragraphs like this, and it can cause us perhaps to look at this and have more questions than answers. And yet, we've just read your infallible and errant Word, and it speaks truth to us. It is the truth for us and to us, and that controls all of life. So help us to come to this with open hearts that are transformed by Your Word. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. Yeah, you could read this paragraph and and think, yes, but, yes, but, there are a lot of yes, buts in here. And we'll get to those here in just a moment. But as you read through this paragraph, you get a sense, you get a flow of what Paul is telling us as believers, what he was telling the Roman church who also were living in a culture of death, who also were living in a very decadent culture. And in those moments, of course, as Christians, we always have choices to make. We always have choices to make. When life comes at us, whether it's in the form of precepts or whether it's in the form of of, uh, uh, other tertiary or secondary decisions, of course, the, the question we have to ask and answer is, how can I honor Christ in this? How can I be obedient to Christ in this? And those are the most important questions for us to ask, because there are going to be opportunities for us to to drag the name of Christ through the mud by our own decisions. But then, sometimes, there are laws that might make it easy for us to drag the name of Christ through the mud. And how do we respond to those? What do we do? When I was thinking through this passage of Scripture this week for, uh, for several different reasons, Victor Hugo's Les Mis came to mind. When I was thinking of, you know, Javert, the strict policeman, law, 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 law. We do everything by the law. Javert was a perfect policeman in the sense that if you want someone who looks at law and says, law is absolute and everything is by the law, and if it's not by the law, then it's absolutely wrong. But if you want tyranny, that's exactly what you want. If you want someone to rule with an iron fist with no compromise, no room for grace, that's exactly what you want. And then you have the priest or or, or Valjean's character who values law but who understands that there are certain moments where the moment is bigger than a prescribed black and white law, and in order to choose grace, we might have to choose outside the law. Now, that may sound weird, and yet when we look at history, and I'm going to mention several events in history, that's exactly the case. In order to choose what is right in a moment, 
An individual or individuals had to choose what was outside of the law. But then we asked the question, did Valjean build a life after he was, you know, converted and all that stuff? Build a life outside the law? No. He sought to follow the laws. He just made room for grace. Javert eventually would put himself outside the law because he had no room for grace. And, of course, he commits suicide in the end. If you don't know the story, I just ruined it for you. He throws himself into the river because the idea that he would not follow the letter of the law was so consuming to him, he thought it better not to live. Of course, we might easily say that you're getting a look at legalism versus grace. And you are. You're also getting several other themes which we don't have time to rehearse here this morning. Now, I want us to note something. The paragraph I've just read to you, Paul is laying down what we would call a general principle of truth here in Romans 13. Here's what we would need to say. This is a good this is good because it's from the pen of Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's true because it's from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's right it's because it's from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But do we look at this as absolute, or do we understand that this is a principle of ideal structure, and that things are not always ideal, right? We have to make that, we have to make this um, application to this. Paul is giving us not an absolute rule regarding the law. He's giving us a general principle for how we should live our lives. So, generally, Christians should be law-abiding citizens. That's generally what we should do. We should look at laws as good and helpful and right. We should seek to keep the laws. We should seek to honor the authority in place. We should seek to do all the things that would make us good citizens as a general rule. When we look at what the goal of the legal system is, the, when, the, when the goal of the, of the ordinances and offices within a legal system is generally honor, that we would honor the office, that we would honor the law. And that should be why and how laws are set up. Honorable laws that we can easily honor, or at least honor if not easily, because they're right and in keeping with what is life-giving, what is good for us as individuals, what is good for society. And can I say this, and this is me talking to me here. We shouldn't always look for loopholes and caveats to keeping law. And it's easy to do as humans because if we don't like it, well, then I want to justify why I shouldn't have to do it. I want to justify why this doesn't really apply to me. That's not unique to you. It's not unique to me. That is human nature. And it goes all the way back to the garden. Did you eat of the fruit of the tree? Well, I mean, the woman you gave me, that's the loophole here. I wouldn't have done it if she hadn't been here. So that I ate it, it's kind of okay because it's her fault anyway. Well, the snake, I wouldn't have eaten that fruit if the snake weren't here. The snake is the one who did it. And, and, and we, 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 it's built into our system to justify and to find loopholes to things that we don't like personally or don't agree with politically or so forth and so on. But we have to be committed to God's supremacy over all. Law-keeping as a general rule is good. It is good. Honoring the Lord is best. And as believers, unfortunately, sometimes those things are opposed. Sometimes 
honoring the Lord and keeping the law are opposed. Brad, what do you mean? Just Google Christianity in China and find out what it means to honor the Lord versus keeping the law. There are no shortage of stories you can read in China. Man, we don't have to relegate it to China. Let's just go to Asia in general. Not all of Asia, but most of it. That you are going to find places where if I'm going to honor the Lord, it is going to be diametrically opposed to keeping the law. And in some cases, that's true even here in the United States. Two realities before Paul as he writes are this. One is that in general, we want to keep the law as a general rule, regardless of the person in authority, regardless of whether we like his or her politics. That's just generally speaking. On the other hand, there are times when allegiance to God is going to dictate how we interact with the laws of the land. It has to. Because when we start seeing things that are legislated that are evil, well, beloved, we have to make a stand somewhere, not to be cantankerous, not to, to stand out, not to just kick against the goads for the sake of doing it, but because it's right. And doing what is right matters. So when we start thinking about this particular paragraph, it is a matter of politics in general. You can't avoid a political discussion here. Politics, legislation, those are all political. So yeah, this is about politics in that sense. But bigger than that, it is a matter of fidelity to God. How are we best faithful to the Lord? How do we best live faithfully to the Lord? In a lot of ways, it's going to be being good citizens. In some ways, it's going to mean some civil disobedience. So with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want, for us to see this, I want for us to see this morning. It's this. How we relate to ruling authority is a fruit of our transformation. How we relate to ruling authority is a fruit of our transformation. What we're doing here, there's two twin pillars when it comes to authority that we would call submission and respect. And so that's kind of where we are. What does it mean to be submissive? What does it mean to be respectful? To whom are we submitting? To whom do we show respect? A lot of those are questions that I think we have to answer when it comes to a paragraph like this. But on the outset, we'd say that the general disposition of Christians should be submission to authority, right? That's the general disposition of Christians should be submission to authority. Now, I want you to notice I'm using words like generally, ideally, when it doesn't conflict because we have to be careful we have to be careful on either side of this conversation making a sweeping broad comment that doesn't, that doesn't take into account that this, this, this ethical dilemma is much larger and more complex sometimes than I think we might give uh, credence to. But when we think about submission and respect, you know, one of the, uh, after my, my chapel life group the other night, I was thinking about the story of the Roman centurion not because we were talking about that. The, the story just kind of occurred to me after some of the ethical, ethical conversations we had in our group. And do you remember when Jesus, or when, I'm sorry, when the centurion comes to Jesus and he wants his servant healed, and Jesus offers to come to his house, and he says, oh, I don't need you to come to my house. Just say the word. Of course, Jesus marvels at his faith. And rightly so, right? I, I would marvel at that if someone just demonstrated that much faith. I mean, knowing what we know, we don't muster up that much faith with the full New Testament often. 
This man didn't have the New Testament. Just say the word and he'll be healed. And you remember when Jesus marvels at it, what his response was, even more marvelous. Well, hey, I'm a man. How does he describe himself? I'm a man under authority. And there's this idea that as people in certain circumstances and situations, the centurion, a great leader of men, probably position, status, wealth, all the clout, had servants, had money. And how does he talk about himself as a man under authority? He understands that there's a hierarchy, and for him to be faithful in what he does, he's a man under authority, but by virtue, he's a man who also has authority. Well, that's a good good picture to get in our brains as we enter into this discussion, to talk, what does it mean to be subject to authority? What does it mean to be in submission? And when we think about this, Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Uh, Let that kind of stand as a thesis statement here for us. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And when we think about this, he's going to lay this out very clearly for us, that this means it's under God's control, that really what we're doing is we're living, if we're subject to the governing authorities, so there is no authority except from God, we are doing this in honor of God, not the person, in honor of God, not what we think of the person, in honor of God, not how we jibe or jail with the person, in honor of God, not how we do or don't like all their ideology, in honor of God. That, that, that becomes it. It's, it's to honor God. Because we look at God, He is King. And so this principle occurs. We obey because it's good and right to obey. We obey because it's good and right to be subject. We are subject to the authorities because we're commanded to. And Paul is building a principle here that Jesus has already laid down. You don't have to turn there, but in John chapter 19, Pilate asked Jesus out of a moment of frustration, don't you know that I have the power slash authority to set you free or have you executed? Do you remember Jesus' answer in chapter 11 of verse John 19, or John chapter 19? You would have no authority over me if it were not first given to you from above. Jesus is setting up a principle there that Paul is picking up on. Maybe not that specifically, but the idea that authority comes from God. It is a rule under God. So guess what that means, beloved? That means that all authority, all governing authority is subject to God, and how they rule and how they lead will also be subject to God. I promise you, maybe you're frustrated with governing authorities. I I, I tend to be. Maybe you're frustrated. There is nothing that you or I could ever devise in our minds or hearts that it can equal to God's displeasure at people who have not led well or faithfully. Will not happen. We can't come up with anything. And so the best thing we can do in these moments is pray for them, pray for good and godly leadership, and pray for God's kingdom to come and His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. These are the best things that that we can do because they are going to be subject to God. Paul builds on this, and those that exist have been instituted by God. He's laying down this principle. All the governing authorities are subject to God, and by virtue, and I'll come back around to this, when we are obeying, we are living in keeping with the law, we're really doing this as a 
act of obedience to the Lord. Now, he continues, therefore, so since the above is true, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So, in general, good authority, when you resist authority, when you resist the law, we're resisting a good and loving God. We are resisting a an institution set down by God. And he speaks here, Paul does, of incurring judgment. Uh, that's probably a, a both-and type thing, a, a temporal, i.e., there are consequences for being a non-law-abiding citizen. Even when we are doing civil disobedience and honor to God, there are consequences that do incur judgment. But Paul has in here a two-tiered system, a temporal judgment, natural consequences that happen, but also those who are rebellious in nature do incur a judgment at the end of all things. So when we look at this, what one thing it tells us is that one of the least God-honoring systems there is is anarchy. When you have anarchy, when you have no rule, no lead, mob mentality, well, that's one of the most godless things we can see. Because we understand that if authority is instituted by God and then we have a rejection of authority altogether, we're looking at a rejection of who God is, His character, and His precepts. So we should never be affiliated with, want to be a part of any sort of anarchy system that looks at no rule is better than even bad rule. God, I say that with a lot of humility. Bad rule is better than anarchy. I've been building on this, and we know that Paul was an Old Testament scholar. He was a Pharisee. And as Paul is writing this, beloved, I want us to be aware of what's also he is aware of. As Paul writes this, he would have been very aware that in Exodus chapter 1, Pharaoh, the governing authority of Egypt, had commanded the midwives to get rid of the male children who were in Israel. What do the midwives do? Man, these Hebrew women are vigorous, Pharaoh. I mean, they have those babies before we can even get there, and then what can we do? Well, there's nothing we can do about it. They weren't being completely forthright in that moment. But what were they doing? They were disobeying the governing authorities of the land for a specific purpose, to save life. Well, not just those in Esther. Esther chapter 4, remember good Queen Esther. What does she do? She defies the laws of the land and presents herself to king. Why? So that she might save her people. They were under the pain and threat of death. So she disobeys. She goes against what is the law of the land to save life. Well, Paul would have also remembered that Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who were all in Babylon... Daniel chapter 3, and again in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel 3, bow down to the state idol. Well, no, Nebuchadnezzar, we're not going to bow down. In, in this moment, we are going to obey a higher authority to worship God alone. Or Daniel being commanded not to pray again by the state, King Cyrus, no, I'm going to pray because it's good and right. So again in Daniel 3, Daniel 6, we have Daniel disobeying the governing authority. In Matthew chapter 2, the wise men come. They hear tell of Jesus. They come to go, to go see, and Herod says, okay, well, when you come back through, come back by this way and let me know because we can go worship 
the child king. And those guys say, you know, I don't think he's genuine. And they disobey him, and they go their own way. Beloved, Acts chapter 5, when the apostles get commanded not to preach by the governing authorities, what do they do? We're going to preach because we are indebted to a higher authority. Why am I telling you all this? Because as Paul writes this paragraph, we need to know that he knows that those things are good biblical stories that we have been fostered on since childhood. So was he. So why am I telling you this? Because there are times where we do serve and submit to a higher authority that might demand that we do things not in keeping with the law of the land. And so when we take the bird's eye view of this, we need to understand what Paul is doing. As a general rule, we should be law-abiding citizens. We should keep the rules. But there are times where ethics demand that we go against authority. And the, uh, we, could, we could look at, you know, in Nazi Germany when people were saving the lives of, of Jewish men and women and children. Yes, they did not obey the law of the land for the purpose of saving life. We see a pattern here, right? That there is a certain principle that trumps just about everything else. It's called the sanctity of life. And so Paul understands that good, faithful believers will understand that the call to love life and protect life and, and do things for the good of life will trump any law of man. But theoretically, rulers are good and they punish evil and they, they give approval to what is good. That's what Paul says here. So good rulers would punish evil. They approve of what is good and we should seek to do good. When he goes on, for God's servants are for your good. But if you do the wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So, and, and, and rulers who are in this position and fail to do this, we need to keep in mind, again, as I've already said, they are going to be subject to God and His law. That the magistrate exists, that is the ruling authority exists, to promote good common sense laws that help people grow and thrive in life. And here's where I have to say this. A good and God-honoring law should never, ever, ever excuse crimes against humanity based on race, gender, or any other external factor. There is no external factor that excuses the blind eye being turned to laws, and humans have done it from their inception on. This is not just privy to our own context. This is a human historical problem. And so when we see the magistrate turning blind eyes to things that are genuinely crimes against humanity, beloved, we are looking at evil. And as believers, we pray for that and we call it such. And we're willing to stand against these things because they're wrong in the sight of God. They're wrong in keeping with uh, the sancti our principles of sanctity of life. The magistrate, he says here, bears the sword not in vain. What does that mean? There's a good reason for him to bear it. He bears it 
to enforce the law, to keep God's authority. What kind of laws should we be looking for? Beloved, we should be looking for laws that are in keeping with God's character, whether the lawmakers are in keeping with God's character or not. In other words, the law to not murder is in keeping with God's character because He is a God who has sanctified life. And when you start looking at laws that protect us from from lying, from theft, from murder, and so forth and so on, these are all things that are in keeping with God's character and are good for humanity anyway. This is exactly what the law was designed to do. Man, because of sin, has murder in his heart, has lying in his heart, has betrayal in his heart, has deception in his heart, and has all sorts of other evil things in his heart that needs to be governed. Now, we need it. When left to ourselves, well, you've, most of you have read Lord of the Flies. That's what happens. Or, or maybe in, in a more theatrical sense, you've seen Mad Max or Road Warrior with Mel Gibson. That's also what happens. People who embrace evil. So when we start looking at governing authorities, on the one hand, we have to say, well, of course we need it because left to ourselves, we descend into the pit. And yet, there are times where we have to obey a higher authority. But beloved, here's what I want to say about that. We need to be really clear on that in our minds, i.e., well, I don't like so-and-so, and and I don't like his stupid legislation. I'm not going to obey it. That is not God-honoring. That's not godly. If so-and-so and and his stupid legislation is not getting you to violate the Word of God, brother or sister, you're in sin if you're not trying to keep that, according to what Paul says here. There's a good reason people who have gone before us to challenge laws that are unjust, that are not in keeping with God's character, that are not right. And we can do so lovingly, we can do so kindly, we can do so humbly. But what he says here is, first he says incur judgment in verse 2. And the rest of this time, he uses the word wrath. Those things kind of coincide together. But he says, therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, so to avoid judgment, but also for the sake of conscience. In other words, we want to do what is in keeping with what we know in our minds and hearts to be right and good. Wrath is real. Our conscience demands it. And this is where we have to say, what is good and right? What mission are we coming up under? Beloved, we lived in a secular geopolitical governing authority. We don't live in a theocracy. We have to understand that. We do not live in a theocracy. We are not going to be living in a theocracy anytime soon until we get to heaven, and it will be a very benevolent theocracy. So for the time being, we live in a secular geo-larger global government in which we have to discern how do we best honor God in society. Well, if we take the principle of loving God and loving our neighbor as the two key pillars, and then we ask, how can we generally keep uh, or be law-abiding citizens? Well, that's, that is exactly what Paul is getting at here, while also understanding Daniel 2, Dan- or Daniel 3, Daniel 6, Exodus 1, Esther 4, Matthew 2, Acts 5, Hebrews 11. There are going to come times Where in our allegiance to God, we have to break away and say, I have a higher allegiance here. That takes trust. It takes discernment and wisdom. 
and it takes boldness. Law-keeping takes trust, it takes discernment and wisdom, and it takes boldness. So Paul says, for the sake of conscience, and then for because of this you pay taxes. Paul doesn't say you have to love it, but we pay taxes for the authorities are ministers, literally servants of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. You can't read this and not think about the, the Pharisees trying to trap Jesus. And they say, Jesus, is it right for us to pay tribute to Caesar or not? And we know Jesus' answer. Give me a denarius whose image and whose inscription is on here. Caesar's. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. In that moment, that tribute tax, you need to understand the tribute that Israel was having to pay (laughs) was a separate, completely separate, totally payment to Rome for the privilege of being tyrannized by Rome. That's exactly what it was. That's what they were paying. They were paying for the right to be tyrannized by Rome. And so Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. In this sense, paying taxes here, governments are run by taxes. Now, we don't have to agree with all the taxes. And if you look at the tax code in America, if you've ever really looked at it, it is bonkers. It is crazy. And, I mean, you pay taxes on money that you've already been taxed on three and four different times in different ways. But Paul doesn't say, hey love paying taxes. He just says, pay them. Paying taxes. Why? Because the authorities are servants of God attending to this very thing. Oh, beloved, this ups the honor in which we give these offices, that we understand that these are instituted by God. Are taxes always fair? No. And in situations, we take the right way to 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 combat that. But paying them is submitting to God. I love that Paul expands on this, not just taxes and revenues, but honor. Give to everyone what's owed to them. This, he says, is a service to God, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, taxes to whom taxes are owed. And here's, here, here it is. This is the linchpin to all this. Why do we do this? You don't do it for the glory of yourself, and I don't. We don't do it for the honor of even the person in those offices. We do it to be faithful to the Lord and to honor Him. When we really grasp this idea, and really grasp it, I mean really, really lay hold of this idea, that our lives are soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. It does revolutionize how we do most anything we do. Because now we're not doing it for the glory of the state. We're not doing it for the approbation of our peers. We're not doing it because we like these laws. We're doing it because it's right. And this is our calling in the Lord. Because times will come where we have to make a stand and be confident that we are honoring the Lord though we stand out of accord with a law. But as a general rule, we seek to live in keeping with the laws of the land. Faithfulness to God is the goal of law-keeping and disobedience. It's got to be. 
much of the civil disobedience that was orchestrated by Martin Luther King and, and, and Medgar Edwards and, and, and some of the other people who were part of the civil rights movement, uh, many of them, uh, we, we, don't, we don't have to make comments on them, at the totality of their persons, but a lot of the times when you look at what they're doing, their own civil disobedience, it was in disobedience to things that were unjust, things that should not have been legislated law. And so when we think about faithfulness to God, that's got to be the goal of law-keeping. It's got to be the goal of disobedience. So whatever we do, we've got to understand this is not just because I don't like it. This is because this is in keeping with the glory of God. Or if I do something, it's in keeping of the glory of God. But it's easy to decide that if we don't like certain laws, God would allow us to simply disregard them. We, we do it. But unfortunately... That's not how it works. If we're going to be people who honor Christ and live with integrity, we are law-abiding citizens. Are some things in life unfair? Yes. Have you, been the, have you been victimized by things that are not fair? Probably, maybe. I don't know. Some things in life are not fair. But when things are done to us sinfully, it is never right to respond sinfully. How do we live and honor God, even in respond to things that are unfair? Man, I hate to, I don't hate it, but I'm going to give you something that might feel cliche. We trust the Lord. We trust the Lord and His goodness. If we are to be people who honor Christ and live with integrity, we are law-abiding citizens. Do people who rule our system use it for unjust gain? Yep. Congress is filled with them. Political offices at the highest level are filled with the greed and corruption, and it happens all over the place, and it's wrong. Beloved, it's wrong. But guess what? They'll have to answer to God for that. We don't answer for them, and whatever we do or don't do to them makes no difference in the final end. They stand before God. We need to be praying for righteousness to prevail, and them and in us. Our obedience or disobedience has nothing to do with them and everything to do with our call, our call to be godly. Sometimes godliness will demand that we disobey the law. And in those times, we pray for God to give us grace to do it. But whether in obedience or disobedience, our call is fidelity to God alone, period, end of story. And beloved, here's where we pray for wisdom, we pray for grace, and we pray for the boldness to do what is right because the days are upon us, the days are coming when we're going to have to make hard choices as believers, as people who are committed to righteousness. And may the principle of the glory of God alone be the banner under which we live. Please pray with me. Father, uh, this is not an easy subject and not always the easiest to ferret out. And I pray for every soul in here this morning who may have to come up against having to make a hard decision on to obey or disobey, that your Spirit, O oh Lord, would guide us, that we would not obey or disobey out of any fear or selfishness, that we would be driven by the fear of the Lord, and that your Spirit working in us would work to give us boldness in the truth of things that we would be planted and anchored in who you are and that your spirit 
Lord, give us grace each day to know truth, to believe truth, and to live out the precepts of truth. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.